listening to season six of the Afropop Close-Up podcast, where we go beyond the music into politics, religion, history, and culture. In this episode, my conversation with an unlikely reggae legend, Patricia Chin. Born in Jamaica in 1937 to a Chinese mother and an East Indian father, Pat Chin and her late husband, Vincent Randy Chin, founded VP Records. First a music shop in Kingston, then relocated to Queens, New York in 1979, VP Records became a label and one of the biggest independent distributors of reggae, soca, and dancehall music. Miss Pat, as she's known, recently published a beautifully illustrated autobiography called Miss Pat, My Reggae Music Journey. She spoke with me over Zoom from VP headquarters in Queens. Congratulations on this book. It's such a pleasure and it's really an honor to speak with you. I want to start by having you tell us a little bit of the prehistory about how your ancestors and Vincent's came to Jamaica in the first place. My side of the family, my mother is Chinese and my dad is an East Indian. My parents didn't talk too much about their parents and I guess their parents didn't talk much about their coming to Jamaica. But I know they all landed in Port Antonio, about two hours from Kingston. And there the ship got wrecked and they came off. I guess my grandparents settled in Port Antonio and they put up a little grocery store and they lived there and had seven children and then they moved to town. Going back to my mom, she had me very young, a hundred years ago, she would be a hundred this year. Marina, out of her culture, wasn't the norm, so my mom had a hard time. She grew up with the Indian side, which is my father's side. My father's side, when he was 12, my father's father got shot, and he had to grow up very fast at 12, taking care of his three-year-old sister. We grew up very poor because I, I didn't know my Chinese side until I was 12. So I get, that's what brought me uh, to the person I am. Although growing up poor, we knew that people were much poorer than us, and it taught us about community and helping others. So that's where my story starts until I met my husband. And then I repeat the cycle because I didn't marry in my culture because my husband was black and Chinese also. You mentioned in the book that that was difficult for both sides of the family. Maybe just tell us first how you met Vincent and how that drama unfolded. I met Vincent through my grandfather. They had a little bakery and Vincent was employed to drive the bread van to deliver the bread. And where I lived in Greenwich Farm, there was a little grocery store right beside my house. And Vincent would deliver bread there. And that's how I got to know him. I was about 17 at that time. Father was very, very strict. I couldn't go out the street. So when I met him, he was more experienced than I was. He had a child. I was drawn to him because he seemed to be a rude boy. And, and because I was brought up so strict. So. To make a long story short, he got a job at a jukebox company. And um, I used to go out with him to change the jukebox records in the clubs and the bars all around the country, from Kingston to Montego Bay. And it cost a week, sleep in the car sometime. It was both an interesting life for me. I found it very interesting about music because I, I wasn't exposed to music before. 
I could see how much the music meant to people, you know, when he went in the store or when he went in the bars and the clubs. They were so excited to see him bringing in the box of new records. At that time, we didn't have a culture named reggae music, not much, a few little calypso and not much. It was all American records like Sam Cooke, The Drifters, Benny King, Aretha Franklin. During the time I was doing nursing at the University of the West Indies, then I became pregnant and I had to leave after a year and a half. Were you married at this point? No, I wasn't married. I didn't get married until um, about a month before my first child was born. And that's when it became a little tricky with the parents, right? Yes. Well, my father didn't speak with me for eight months. And after a time, I got so fed up, I went to live with Vincent's family. We got married at the Catholic church. Not in the church, the rectory behind the church. My father didn't come, my mother didn't come. We have no flowers, no, no cake. <laughs> It's very interesting to me that you say you were attracted to Vincent originally because he was a rude boy. So it, it, there was something about being so restricted that made you want to break out of that and have the opposite experience, right? Yes. I was attracted to him because he was so exposed to other things. Life, smoke, drink. Yeah, that became a problem later, I understand. Yeah, later on. Okay, so then you moved from being a distributor of records to actually having this shop. What year did that happen? Maybe 1958, 59. My um, father-in-law had a friend at a, a large restaurant at 17 North Parade. So we rented a space, like a 10 by 10 space. Three people came in, it was full. <laughs> Very tiny. <laughs> So not only did we sell used record, but I went to West Indian record that was owned by the late prime minister, Mr. Eddie Siago. Yeah, his role is fascinating. He owned West Indian record, and I usually go down there and buy one person's sledge, one Jim Reeves, one Sam Cooke, one Drifters. And when I sold them, I would go back and buy one more. <laughs> wow. I should tell you a little why my uh, entrepreneur spirit told me to do business. When I was 12 years old, going to government school, we were extremely poor. My dad used to work at a haberdashery so he could get rubber bands and marbles very cheap. It was the thing of, the, of that time. <laughs> marbles were come in different sizes and they were pretty and you, know, you could trade them with different colors and the rubber band was the same thing. So during lunchtime, I usually sell them for my lunch money. So that's at my early age of <laughs> knowing how to sell and what to sell and how to sell and where to sell. So we bought next door building, we put up a studio, Studio 17, and that was the haven for all the Jamaican <laughs> music being formed. Artists, producers, singers, backup singers, musicians, you name it. That must have been such an exciting time. You say in the book that 1964 was the breakout year for reggae. What happened that year? Take us back to 1964. Well, we just got independence in 1962. And it's like a joyous time for us. So we had to innovate and to create new things. And at that time, the spirit was very high. My husband made a record called Independent Jamaica to celebrate. And the radio did not want to play it until when the people started to sing it on the street, then they were forced to play it. And during that time also, Byron Lee, which was a famous Jamaican, Chinese band went to the U.S. I don't know if you remember, we had a World's Fair. I went there. 
as a young boy. <laughs> yes, well, Baron Lee gave the world our music. That was ska. So things went along very nicely with that store after that. The business just grew and grew. I love your story about how you met Edward Siaga later and he remembered you. Tell that story. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, he came because we did a project with him for 100 songs. When Baron Lee died, he sit with us in the church. And then when he came to release it, 100 songs, we took him all around to colleges and so to release. And I said, Mr. Siaga, did you remember me when I used to come to West Indian and buy your personal set on your gym reviews? He said, well, how could I forget you? You're the only woman coming to buy one, 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 one record. So that's all I could afford, Mr. Santiago. So we laughed, we had a good time. Such a beautiful story. So tell me why you moved to the United States. Why the business moved there? What was the impetus? In the 70s, early 70s, we had a lot of political unrest. And there was days when we had to be shutting down the shutter, we had these big iron shutters that, you know, you have to pull it down in the night and push it up in the morning. Three, four times a day, there was so much riot, people running, people stealing. So we were very fearful of our life because we didn't know what's going to happen one day. And my children was like 12, Randy was 14, my second son. They were all going to school on the bus and things happen on the bus. People would just want to abuse you because my children had a fair complexion. So that had a lot to do and it was so chaotic and so much crime. So we decided to leave. We just packed everything in the trailer, food, music, everything. My husband came two years before us and I stayed back with my two other kids to run the studio and the store until it was time to get my papers out. But it was very difficult when I came here because I had to start back 20 years backward. It's very difficult. I'm not understanding the culture. I was Chinese. I speak Patois. We rented a store in Jamaica, Queens, because my husband liked the word Jamaica because it reminds us. And 45 years ago, 50 years, there were not much Caribbean people. There were just big department store. And if I remember the shop, the little 10 by 10 space that we rented it was $300 a month. And that was a lot during that time. My biggest sale for a week was like $275. I have books to show you. I would sell $20 one day, $30 one day. I go to Brooklyn 10, 15 times a week to deliver a couple little 45 records. So it's as if we started 20 years over again. So I should tell you about the custom officer when he came to examine the trailer. He said to me, Mrs. Chain, why are you carrying so much food here? We don't have a famine in America. I said, sir, we don't have no money to buy the food, so we have to carry the food to serve us <laughs> for the next two years. <laughs> this is carrying food from Jamaica to Jamaica, Queens. Yeah, rice, sugar, flour, yeah. Wow. We packed the trailer with whatever we could buy as dry goods food together with the records. <laughs> 
I want to go back a second because at that time when you're coming here, that's around the time I first started hearing reggae and all the people around me. And we were hearing it because of Bob Marley, because of The Harder They Come. And also, when I read your book, I went back and rewatched that movie Rockers, which was filmed <laughs> in part right outside your store. Now, you were, the studio was 17 was in action then. You were having sessions at that time. And some of the artists who recorded there are, are stars in that film, right? Yeah. Well, at that time, we were so naive. You know, we were just so happy to see somebody abroad coming to film this thing going on. Everybody was so excited. Big youth riding on the bike, and there, the street was full. The artists, musicians, actors, loafers, sellers, buyers. Steelers, everything was happening at one time. But we didn't have any business at that time because they utilized all the electricity from the store on the sidewalk. There was wires all over the place. So I was so happy when they finished. <laughs> about your memory of the whalers of bob and bunny and peter because when they were starting they did some sessions at studio 17 and you had no idea where they were headed so how did it seem to you at the time i love hearing your memories about those guys when they were young so bob marlin peter and those famous singers that are now famous now they were just ordinary people just trying to do what they like to do and when bob came around was always recorded with lee perry he was the first producer for Bob Marley. I was always on the counter and my husband was in charge of the studio. When they're recording upstairs, sometimes they need a backup singer or they want a, some percussion. So they would just call downstairs, any guitarist down there, send him up. Or any percussion or any singer backup, just send him up. And that's how they would earn a little money. When Lee Perry came there, he would rent the studio for one month just experimenting. A lot of people thought he was crazy, but he was just creating music with what we had at that time. But I remember certain time when Bob came there, not on a session, he would come hang out to look for his friends because they liked football. He would always have the ball in his hand. He was very shy, low key, didn't talk much. Not what you see Bob on stage, he was somebody so different. When Peter came to do recording at the store, I think he did Marcus Garvey and quite a few LPs. He would come very businesslike. If he booked 10 o'clock, you would dare 10 o'clock, go up to the studio, pay his bill and move on. Didn't talk too much either. Bunny Whalers, I remember Bunny Whalers, not too much, but I'm sure you were hanging around there. Ah, such an amazing man. Oh, yes. He never changed. She can't be black heart man, children. I said, don't go near him. She can't be black heart man. About five years ago, I, I had the chance to interview Bunny when he came on, I guess, his last U.S. tour. And he was just such a gentleman, such a lovely man. It was really touching to speak with him. Two years ago, we gave him an award in Brooklyn. And let me tell you, it was such a beautiful soul, a nice person. I mean, I guess when he was young, he was a little on the rebellious side. Fair enough. <laughs> and we all are. We all are when we're young. <laughs> we're trying to find our place <laughs> in line. I'm sad that he passed on. 
But I'm happy that he was at peace with his life and what he did during his time. Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. You know, one thing that really struck me reading your book and reading about Studio 17 and the way you're describing it now, my image of what it was like for recording artists at that time in Jamaica is all from the movie The Harder They Come, where you see all those guys champing at the bit, waiting outside the studio for their chance. It's like it's a very tough, competitive, rough and ready kind of world. Whereas the world you're describing sounds so much more friendly and easygoing. I'm curious, how is it that your studio was so different? Well, when my husband put up Studio 17, he spent a lot of time for the sounds. We had a record store downstairs. So the studio upstairs had to be so soundproof because 24-7 music is being played. So you were particular with the walls, the padding, how the type of equipment. And I only recognized that by talking to two young people that interviewed me last week. They are musicians, so they are telling me about the sound of instrument that the studio had that they appreciated so much. I know my husband came to America to get the best studio equipment. We had three pianos. We had a regular piano and we had an Amon. He had a lot of up-to-the-minute equipment, mics, and the padding that he put in the studios. And then he opened the door to everyone. It was $20 an hour. And sometimes if they didn't have enough money, they paid on $10. So, okay, go up. And you have Don Drummond, the Scatolite, the Mystic Revelation of Rastafari. All of them used to stew there because they could go up there and do what they want and feel free. So that scene in The Harder They Come where you see all those guys like scrambling outside the studio, is that realistic? Was that what it was like at some of the bigger studios? Was your studio really that different? I think my husband was very sociable and they gravitate to him a lot. They used the studio because it was inexpensive. It was in the heart of town. They could do a recording, mix it, put it on a dub plate because we have the machine to cut the dub plate, bring it downstairs and people would listen to it. So you get the right feedback right there. When Chris Parkman made his new 45s with Bob Marley, he brought his 45 records to my store to sell. He was just like another producer with his box of record on his arm. And when he became famous, everybody wanted Bob Marley record. We had to go in the counter and brush them off. They were top sales. <laughs> <laughs> but when you got to America, it was kind of a different story. You had all these artists to sell and everybody wanted Bob Marley, right? Yes. When I came here because of Bob Marley, I thought Roots Music would sell. So I bought a lot of Augustus Pablo, Israel Vibration, Sizzler, anything in Roots Music, I brought those. Not knowing that they didn't associate it too much with Bob Marley. Bob Marley was like way over. It didn't sell as much. What put us on the map was the dance <laughs> When you have Yellow Man rapping and Beanie Man and Buju and then Sean Paul. And I think why dance all took off so much is because of the young people. 
You know, when you're young, you gravitate to the dance hall. When you get a little older, the, the roots music. And when you get a little older in my age, you could gravitate to the lover's rock. I think the music goes with the age too. What do you see as the future of VP Records? We're always changing. You know, when the digital age came in, my son Randy was coming to work with me 25 years ago. And it was the hardest time in our life because we didn't have any digital music. Those all regular, not digitalized. A vinyl versus a CD is much different because I grew up in vinyl and I can hear the difference. <laughs> me too, me too. I can hear the difference. So when digital came in, Randy was, Mom, everything is wrong on the catalog. He had to do over the whole catalog and spend five years to clean up the catalog. Put them in the right order. We didn't go to business school. We just learn as we go along. And we had a lot of good people around us that helped us. A lot of good people. So when all the different changes come about, we have to change with the time. Today it's streaming and I'm happy because you don't have to manufacture anything. You can just stream it all over the world. Very little money, but that's the age we're living in. So for the future, you know, I have three, four grandkids are in the business together with my three, four kids. I hope they will carry on. <laughs> that's why I've done my Vincent and Pat Foundation. You know, we're always helping community from day one. But having my foundation, I will be able to have more resources to help in any way I can to preserve the music and to give back to the artists, the musicians, giving the young a chance. The proceeds of my book will go to my foundation. That's beautiful. You've learned from your parents certain values, even though you had disagreements. And I'm very sure that you've passed all of that on to the future generations. And uh, well, we'll be watching. And thank you so much for taking time. It's an honor to speak with you. Next time I'm down there, I'm going to pay you guys a visit. Please, please call me and let me meet up and have lunch or, <laughs> or just chat and meet my children. Ah, it sounds great. I would love that. And I want to thank you for having this time with me and I appreciate your service to the music and loving reggae music, music on a whole. And I want to give a shout out to all the reggae fans, your listeners, artists, the musicians, the DJs, the sound systems, all who make this music so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Miss Pat. Patricia Chin's book is called Miss Pat, My Reggae Music Journey. And it's well worth it just for the vintage photographs and spectacular artwork. It is also beautifully written and deeply informative. Check it out if you can. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. But to keep this series going, we need your support. Visit Afropop.org and make a donation. Every dollar counts. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Banning Air. So girl, don't you understand that the man is just a man. That's the way I give my love.